Matthew chapter 5. Just while you're finding that, you, the other flyer on your seats is uh, an invitation to this fundraiser for Living Space. Living Space is our refurbishment project. We are uh, rounding the final bend and heading into the final straight. More on that next week, a bit of an update and an announcement. Uh, but um, to that end, Thursday the 6th of December here, this is for you, for friends. Uh, it's kind of after work, you'll see 6 to 8.30, so you can come in after work drinks and canapes um, and then uh, we've got an online giving platform so you can sort of pledge for different elements of the project uh, from small items to relatively large items as part of all that we're looking to do to refurb this church. Uh, there are raffle tickets you can buy as well for some prizes, great Christmas presents uh, ahead of the uh, Christmas season. So um, 6th of December here in church, 6 to 8.30, plan to come along, bring friends, uh, and uh, in the spirit of generosity, contributing not just to the running of the church, but to the refurbishment of this place. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, picking up on the sixth commandment that we are looking at today, um, you shall not murder. And Jesus said this, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. Settle, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Say those of us versed in Anglican liturgy, don't worry. <laughs> I'm gonna pray, Lord, simply that you would challenge us this evening. This is a simple little command, but it has far-reaching implications. So we pray you would help us, Spirit, to engage heart and mind and will to shape and orient our lives around your life and your desire for each and every one of us to live well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, the, um, in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy, the, the mirror version of, parallel version of the, what are known as the Ten Commandments. If you're, if you're new or visiting, we're just working our way through what are known as the Ten Commandments. I, I feel, always feel slightly uneasy, but the Ten Commandments, it sounds like, you know, big angry God sort of way, wagging a finger, thou shalt not. To be fair, most of them are framed as you shall not. They, they, they're negatively framed, but actually the spirit behind the, the commands or literally the covenant words or the words of life the spirit behind them is, is, this is, this is what will enable you to live and live well. 
That's, that's God's longing for his people through Moses to the people then. That's his longing for us here today, that we would, we would live well. We would boss at life. And so the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Interesting, in the Hebrew, uh, the original, it's just one word. It, it literally translated, no murder. That's all he says on the subject. And Jesus picks it up here. And we'll come on to uh, how Jesus picks up the Old Testament, as he, does, as he does with many of the laws, actually, in this, what's known as a Sermon on the Mount, chapter, Matthew's chapter 5 through to 7. Uh, he takes the familiar Mosaic law, including the commandments, and he applies them to his hearers then. And we take it, Jesus' application by the Spirit and apply it to us here today. No murder. Essentially what God is saying to us is that life is sacred. Life is sacred. That there is nothing more vital, more beautiful, more pure, more essential than God's life in us and the recognition of that in others around us. So, so don't extinguish life. Don't murder. When God looks on the world and he sees uh, tragically in the early chapters of Genesis how warped and twisted uh, the world has become so quickly, just in a few generations, uh, there is only evil all everywhere he looks and God decides in a, in a catastrophic event to wipe the slate clean. He sends a flood and raises up or spares Noah through the flood, a Christ-like figure through the death to emerge to new life and he establishes a new covenant with Noah and he says to, to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God has God made man. Genesis 9 verse 6. Life is sacred. Life is sacred. So I want to just look at three broad headings this evening. Uh, stemming from that idea, which we, the application of the commandment, life, do not murder, we take from that, life is sacred. Firstly, that it is uniquely God who gives life and uniquely God ultimately who can take it away. It is God's. He gives us life and it's his to give and to take away. Secondly, we're made, as we often repeat here, but it's, it's core to our understanding, we're made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. Therefore, in all that we do and say, in the way in which we act, we are to honor God and honor the life that he's given us and given to each other. And thirdly, stemming from that, we're created by the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to relate well to one another, to, to bring out the, the beauty, the creativity of the life that God has given us. Not to harm it or to kill it, but to enhance it and to bring it out. So life is sacred. It's uniquely God's to give and take away. We're made in God's image. We honor that and we're called to relate to one another well beautifully as a, as a sign. God, God's people, Israel and, and the church, are called to be a light amongst the Gentiles so that we, the way we live our lives speaks so well of who God is. Life is sacred. It's God's to give and to take away. The pacifists would say, amen. Absolutely. 
particularly on this 100th anniversary of armistice, do not deliberately take the life of another. And actually, might, they might point to further teaching of Jesus just across the page there. Verse 38 of chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. If anyone wants to take your tunic, then uh, take it, let them take your shirt and your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go the extra mile with them. In other words, go above and beyond to establish peace and well-being. Don't, don't escalate in any way violence between you. I think the Jews and God's people in Old Testament times understood uh, that the words that God uses is, is murder, do not murder, or unlawful killing. They recognize that there may be times and places when, in order to, this idea of preserving the sanctity of life, then uh, there were perhaps capital offenses that were met with capital punishment when the punishment for taking another's life was to take that life. So lawful killing was uh, an accepted part of society then, as in many places in our culture and in our world today. But the law was created to temper our reactions. So precisely that, an eye for an eye, is not so that violence and retribution escalates. It, it's to make sure that any kind of retribution was proportionate. If, if, if someone maims you in the eye, then you maim them back in the eye, but no more. Don't take both eyes and an arm and a leg. That, that any reaction is temperate and proportionate. And uh, there was much law around the restraining of war. A, a tragic inevitability of peoples trying to live in the image of God, but falling short of his glory, falling out tribe with tribe, nation with nation. So warfare, a, a, an accepted part of the fallenness of our nature. So let's work to restrain violence, death and murder within that. Theologians have worked down the ages at um, the, the, the thinking of a what's called a just war uh, and a just war theory so that for example it is not legitimate to go to war um, simply to preserve the instinct of one's one's nation sort of instinctive patriotism my country is right or to go to war just on the basis of the power of the protagonists uh, might is not right necessarily but a, a just war, among other pointers, asserts that nations should not go to war unless it is to defend a, a, a right or a freedom. War should not be waged aggressively. You should not be the initiator. But if someone has injured or harmed your people or your possessions, then you have a right to defend yourself. But secondly, the, the defense must be proportionate. Again, rather like the eye for the eye. So a, a small, so for example, in our history, the, the um, recent history, the Falkland Islands, just a relatively small set of islands off uh, the coast of Argentina. Uh, you can debate whether we should have gone to war with that, <laughs> red herring for another time. But uh, the, the response for, with our British might was to be proportionate with the, the relative um, uh, inability of the Argentine forces at that time. 
and to be discriminate. In other words, to, to target the main offenders, not indiscriminate, uh, what's known as carpet bombing, taking out of whole areas, including civilians. And you'll know just from the news feeds uh, in the last few years, theatres of war around the world today, just how that just war theory has been pressed to the limit or even um, run roughshod in, in different ways. This Armistice Day, the exact 100th anniversary when the guns went quiet on the Western Front, we remember in that horrific war, uh, horrendous loss of life, the extraordinary, I mean, awful experience of teenagers. I think of the, these, many of the people who fell, no doubt many of the 83 names on the uh, board here, I don't know if you knew this is a First World War memorial here, 1914-1918, uh, and in, in gold here, if you come up and see, are the names of all those who lived in this parish who went off to war and never returned. I, I, I wager many of them were teenagers, younger than my son, and they saw horrific things. Those that survived saw horrific uh, loss of life, catastrophic, senseless mass killing, killing. I think we remember this day as not murder within the confines of just war. Regrettable, tragic, awful. We hope never to be repeated. The war to end all wars, they said. But not murder. A tragic loss of life. And tragic because life is sacred. Many, many, uh, I, historians, social historians argue that a whole generation really uh, they, they track sort of the, the um, Christianity in our in our country over the 20th century, and a significant sort of uh, uh, sort of barrier, if you like, to growth or a huge impact on the Christian faith in our country was that men went to war into the First World War feeling they'd been called by God and country, and they they were confronted with a desolate hell on earth. And those that survived, and, and many of the sort of families and friends who received loved ones back or lost one loved ones, thought, how can there be a God? In that, in that mass killing, where is the sanctity and the sacredness of life? Caused too many people to question and to jettison their faith. And God says, do not murder, do not kill unlawfully, because life is sacred. How does it apply to us in relative peacetime, this idea that life is sacred? Well, I want to just address one or two issues that um, are potentially contentious and, and controversial. There may be a range of opinions in this room, but I, it would be remiss of me, even on notwithstanding Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday, to, to mention one or two other areas that's, that tease away at the moral fabric of our society when we're thinking about this sixth commandment. What about the end of life, euthanasia? It's a fact that the boomers, the so-called baby boomers, are coming up to retirement. There is a big sort of population bubble that are going to become, as the economists rather uh, crudely call it, uh, economically unproductive in retirement. A huge uh, uh, way, uh, um, segment of the, of the population that will need care and supporting by a relatively small workforce. 
it's extraordinary the technology now that is uh, available through artificial intelligence and so on. The, the use of in the health service and, and uh, sort of uh, particularly the care of the aged, those with um, uh, sort of uh, diseases of the mind, uh, Alzheimer's and so on, they're using and finding very effective to use robots. So um, sort of cuddly seals. I was reading the other week an article in the in the week, sort of compendium of the news. They've created a sort of cuddly little seal with big doughy eyes that responds to touch or to noise. So if you you make any kind of noise, and this thing will respond, and it will it will actually provide a kind of comfort to uh, those suffering with Alzheimer's, freeing up uh, human care, be it family, be it uh, national health service, um, daycare visitors, and so on. I wonder whether that's something of a, a slide, a thin edge uh, of the wedge towards the deliberate ending of human life, thought to be uh, inconvenient, a, a pain, or too much for us to cope with or to bear. I want to make the distinction with that and palliative care, that is the use of our uh, advanced knowledge and technology with medicines and so on to to bring comfort to those who we know are dying in the end stages of their life uh, with death imminent to bring comfort relief of pain that's that's different from deliberately ending a life prematurely and I guess in our country we've um, been sliding towards a greater acceptance of euthanasia, there are those who campaign for the right to die uh, and for others to put them, them to death. It was hastened, I think, by Tony, the case of Tony Bland. Unfortunately, he was uh, the 96th victim of the Hillsborough disaster in 1989, the uh, semi-final tragedy. And uh, he was in a, a coma for over three years. And eventually the House of Lords ruled in 1992 that it would be lawful to remove his feeding. Doctors, the sort of diagnosis was he was never going to recover. He was just in this vegetative state, and so the House of Lords ruled that it would be lawful for him to have his feeding removed, effectively to end his life. And uh, since then, there have been a number of cases where people in a similar condition have had their life ended lawfully. Where do we sit with that and the sixth commandment? There have been a number of other cases, most notably um, Eddie Kidd. He was, he was more my era than yours. But he was a kind of stunt man, stu motorcyclist stunt man. He, his, his trick was to sort of jump over uh, several lines of double-decker buses. Uh, risky business. Uh, he had a really bad accident, was in a coma for weeks. And he was told, his wife and next of kin were told that he wasn't going to recover. Uh, and yet, miraculously, he opened his eyes and conversed with his wife and those around him to their amazement. And again, there have been other cases like that. Given that notwithstanding the uh, amazing scope and extent of our scientific abilities these days, there are still anomalies, still, we might say, miracles. What does that do to our stance in terms of viewing the end of life? Life is sacred, God says. You shall not murder. Secondly, we're made in God's image. We're made in God's image. So if not the end of life, then can I touch, if I dare, on the beginning of life? Abortion. 
Now, uh, again, there will be a range of opinion in this room, I wager, and there will be some strongly held opinion. And I feel uh, sense it's a sensitive area for a man to address, and I caveats all over the place. I, I can only address, begin to address the issue here. I, I realized in, in preparing this talk, <laughs> one, one word in the Hebrew, no murder, and I realized there's a whole sermon series, actually, when you begin to unpack it and look at all the implications, things that we could look at. I haven't even got on to what Jesus said. I'm very conscious that uh, it takes a man and a woman to uh, give rise to the circumstances that lead to an abortion. And it's often the woman who feels the pressure, often coerced by the man. Uh, and it's definitely the woman who feels bears the main brunt of the, the guilt and the pain that subsequent abortion often inflicts. So I'm aware of that. But I, I think I have to say that since the 1967 uh, abortion Act permitted abortion in, and I quote, specific and exceptional circumstances. The rise, the alarming rise of abortions for anything other than specific or exceptional circumstances needs our prayerful attention and concern, I would wager. 98% of abortions carried out today are for so-called social reasons. In other words, not for those extreme or specific or exceptional circumstances, like, for example, the mother uh, of the child's life being in, in grave danger, or that the child itself carries uh, uh, severe abnormalities, or that the woman has fallen pregnant as a result of rape or some other uh, um, related sort of uh, traumatic experience. Uh, it, the statistics, recent statistics, are that less than 2% of abortions are sought by people in that category. And indeed, the, the rape victims, there's another survey, uh, women who've become pregnant as a result of rape, 64% of those who've fallen pregnant through rape opted to keep the baby. And yet there are over 600 abortions carried out every day in this country, over 4,000 in the United States. If life is sacred, and if we are made in God's image, where do we stand? before God in terms of the Sixth Commandment. I don't want to say that and leave that there without saying that we are family here. We're a family who we sing about a God. We constantly sing about a God. The reason why we sing about him is because we believe it. <laughs> and if we don't yet believe it, then we'll sing it until we do, until the Spirit so massages our heart that he is a good God. He's a God who he we sang today. I, I am healed. I'm forgiven. I'm restored. And whatever the circumstances, and whatever the issues, not just the issues I might be addressing today, but where we find ourselves uh, ill at ease with the God who calls us into life, or just out of kilter with his plumb line uh, plans and purposes for our lives, then we would love to, 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 to sit with you, to pray with you, maybe to refer you on to people more skilled or pastoral than ourselves, in order that we can live life well. Life is sacred. We're made in God's image. We're made, thirdly, to relate well to each other. Rob Warner, in this uh, book, The Ten Commandments and the Decline of the West, uh, written out of his concern to see, he sees a sort of moral fabric of Western culture decaying and fraying all around us. Uh, and he's written that actually, you know, so many of the sort of secondary and tertiary implications of our not taking seriously enough the Sixth Commandment. 
uh, impact us in all sorts of ways, uh, particularly the way in which we relate to one another. What, what are we to make, for example, of um, those who work for uh, the prospering of the tobacco industry? Um, less of a thing, because I think sort of smoking is, is less in vogue as it was maybe a generation or two ago, but there is a substance that is, is known now, proven to, to uh, bring on an early death. What about those who work in the arms trade? A uh, significant amount of our GDPR is, is devoted towards the, the export of arms to other countries, uh, even countries who can hardly afford to feed their own. Where do we stand on that? What about those who, who um, produce video games that sensationalize violence or diminish the impact of, of death through sort of euphemisms like, you know, taking out or, or mopping up? Dozens and dozens of people killed at the click of a button, simulating the pull of a trigger. You, you scum, you rat, you're nothing. Or rucker, I think that's what that means. You, you're just a nothing. Which, which brings us on to what Jesus says here in Matthew 5, 21, as is often his case and, and following. In the Sermon on the Mount, he takes the familiar law, which is kind of, clear and kind of hard line enough, no murder, and he takes it even further. We'll see you next week with adultery. <laughs> he does the same, as if trying to keep himself pure and not committing adultery isn't hard enough, he takes it even further and applies it to every single one of us. He, he goes from the end, uh, if you like, uh, the sort of end stage, which is uh, murder in this case, and brings it to the first stage, which is the heart. So you've heard that it was said, people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, you, you, you're a waste of space, you're nothing. The, the very opposite of, you're full of God's life. Or anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Just casual insults, diminishing others, seem to come onto Jesus' radar. And he understands that murder is simply the ultimate form of anger in the heart. Or as one commentator concluded, hatred is killing in your heart. And we know from the early on, again, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, the, the, the world is brand new. <laughs> and yet uh, Abel's gift is acceptable in a way that Cain's isn't. God knows it's an issue of the heart. And actually it's in God's Heart, sorry, in Cain's heart that he conceives the plot to murder his brother Abel. It's conceived in his heart and it's nurtured in his mind long before it's carried out indeed. An anger and a resentment had fermented and the ultimate expression unchecked is that Cain murders Abel. And Jesus says, yeah, you've got the law, don't murder, but let's work it back. How is your heart in relation to others? We were made to be carriers of God's life and life-giving life. How are we relating to each other? And in particular, how is our anger? In the Bible mentions anger on 455 occasions. And on 375 of them, that anger refers to God. 
God is an angry God, or at least a God who is capable of anger. And actually, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? If we look at the world around us, made, we're told in Genesis 1 and 2, so good, so beautiful, so perfect. This is very good, God says. If you look at the world around us, and if you were responsible for creating it, you see the mess that is, we've made of it. Wouldn't you be tempted to anger? And yet, actually, time and time again, the anger of God is described as, as long-suffering, as patient. Psalm 103, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's our God, capable of anger and justifiably so, a right anger, but he's slow in it and abounding in love. What about us? I, I'm going to charitably assume that when we look literally at the sixth commandment, um, I'm not sitting in front of a bunch of murderers but how is how is our anger how's our temper James Brian Smith in his book The, the Good and Beautiful Life he um, describes a kind of a kind of um, rather unhappy aha moment as he was driving in, in a car with a friend of his and he realized that as the journey progressed, he was getting more and more angry with familiar with road rage, uh, cars cutting him up, people making the wrong decisions, everyone being a worse driver than he was. You know, he, was he knew exactly what he was doing. He was in the right lane, the right time, going the right speed, and no one else knew what they were doing, white vans in particular. And as he sort of became aware of this sort of road rage, at the same time, he became aware that his passenger was just really chill. And he, he got conversing with his passenger, sort of, you know, What's going on? How come you're so chill? And he said, well, you're always going to get drivers who aren't quite sure whether. Maybe they were visiting the city and they weren't quite sure of the one-way system of the roads. Maybe they've only just finished learning. Uh, maybe there's all sorts of things. I don't know, there's all sorts of things that can happen. Momentary distractions or stuff happens like that. Why should that bug you in the way that it clearly did? He, he, he reflected on that and, and offers this example of how anger kind of germinates and grows and flares up in us. He, he, he talks about a combination of, um, of uh, unmet expectations and fear. It's a potent mix. And he gives this example. To tr try this out. Suppose you're meeting someone for lunch. Let's say meet them in town at 1 o'clock. And you get there, it's 1 o'clock, and they've not showed up. 10 past, 20 past, half past. And they've, they've no text, no notification, nothing, and they've just not turned up. That's really irritating. I mean, we're busy people. We've got things to do. We, there's a whole, we could have finished off those emails or done that project. There's a whole load of things we could have done in that time that we've just wasted waiting for them. And what's more, they didn't let me know. There was no kind of notification. That's really irritating. Actually, the more I think about it, that's really annoying. Really annoying. You kind of relate to that? Ever happened to you? Oh irritating. But James Brown Smith said that, that the anger begins to ferment when the, that's that, by the way, sorry, that's an unmet expectation. I was expecting you at one and you haven't turned up. So uh, there's a, I've, I've been let down. Something hasn't happened as I thought it would. An unmet expectation. And it's irritating. But the anger begins to, to sow in and ferment when I add into that concoction fear. And the fear narrative begins to explore 
maybe why they haven't turned up. After all, if I was Her Majesty the Queen, or if I was a celebrity, they would have been there on time. But they haven't turned up because it's, it's only me. Ah, it's, it's only me. Here's the fear narrative. I, I'm not actually that important to this person. They, they've probably forgotten. I bet they didn't even write it down in their phone or diary. I, I'm just not that important to them. I don't, I don't really matter to them. I don't really matter. I don't really have worth. I don't really have... And that fear narrative quickly... And so it latches on. The fear that I'm not worthy, I'm not significant, I don't matter, latches on to all sorts of unmet expectations. And so I become really angry at this person. How dare they? How dare they? And they didn't even let me know. And then Jens Brian Smith, he says, uh, it's 1.31, and they turn up with a bandage over half their head and clearly a black eye and some blood sort of oozing out of the... And it turns out that they were on their bike riding. They'd left plenty of time for the lunch appointment. In fact, they were planning to get there early. But they'd been knocked off their bike by a careless driver. And uh, so they had to deal with the ambulance and check the concussion. No, all fine, but bandage your head and insurance details, dealing with the police. That's what made them late. And of course, with all that going on, they didn't have a chance to get on the phone. And James Bryson says, look, look what happens T to that story. We, we flip immediately from anger to compassion. Oh, no, are you OK? I'm so sorry. I didn't realize. Hang on, if just a little bit of uh, um, additional information can flip us from anger to compassion, then how did we get so angry in the first place? Now, let's be honest. Is there anyone here, can you raise your hand, if you've lived through uh, a week, a month, a year, all your life, and all your expectations have been met, you've never been let down, nothing's ever gone wrong, or, or as you haven't planned? No, of course, every single day. You, you think you know what's going to happen tomorrow, but something else will come in. We have that all the time, several times a day. So the issue isn't unmet expectations. We all experience that. The issue is the fear narrative. That when because they will, when an unmet expectation, when something goes out of order, something goes as we don't expect, when that confronts us, how do we respond? Oh, that's just because I'm not dot, dot, dot. It, it never happens to me. I'm always, I'm not valued. I'm not worth. I'm not special. And it's into that that I don't count nobody loves me, into that fear, the unmet expectation, whatever it is, just, it, it just fans into flame, and irritation becomes anger, and we spew it out on whoever's around. And this is Jesus, <laughs> teaching to our hearts. Jesus, who John describes as full of grace and truth, full of grace, full of love. As he teaches these people here and revises the Ten Commandments into their lives, into our lives, he's speaking his love. On Remembrance Sunday, we remember as some of these dear men here had no grave, that Jesus borrowed a grave for three days and has no further need of it because Christ died and then was raised to brand new life. He died our death so that we could live his life. 
as sons and daughters of the living God today. He's alive today. He lives in us by his spirit today. We are valued. We are significant. We are loved. We are cared for. There is no unmet expectation in God. He will provide for our every need. In him, I am so secure. And his perfect love drives out fear, John tells us. Perfect love drives out fear. So as I focus on Jesus, the ultimate law giver and giver of life, as I, as I lean into him, as I'm filled by him, surrounded by him, as I gaze on him and meditate on him, as I bring him into my workplace and into my car, and in that relationship with the client or the boss or wherever the irritation and the anger, the, the fear can lurk and fan into flame, I bring Jesus pure love, perfect love to cast out the fear so that when I am confronted by, as James calls it, an unmet expectation, I, I spill out trust, not anger. I, I spill out peace, not an irritation. Martin Luther King, love is the only force that can turn an enemy into a friend. Love working on our hearts, reducing fear, building trust. So we can practice. As uh, Sharon this morning, I, I've come across this app, they advertise it. It's just, I think it's called the Calm app. Have you come across it? <laughs> it just, I, I find, because I'm, I'm a kind of, I'm a technological immigrant, not a native like you guys. So I, I do find some of these things strange, really, if I'm honest. You can, you can get this app on your phone that will encourage you just to take time out for 15 seconds. And you kind of press this thing, and there's a little little sort of thing that goes around for 15 seconds. And it's accompanied by a picture of a, of a waterfall or a sort of, of a, a bird in slow motion or a, a flower. <laughs> and I, I just for 15 seconds, you know, it encourages me to be calm. Well, hey, whatever helps. I mean, f f be my guest, use it. <laughs> breathe in, breathe out. W whatever it takes. Apparently, President Lincoln ha had a, um, uh, his secretary of war was a man named Ed Edwin Stanton, and he was having trouble with one of his generals. And he went to Lincoln and said, look, I'm really struggling with this general who had basically sort of besmirched him and accused him of, of preferment. And uh, Lincoln said, well, why don't you write him a letter? So uh, Stanton went away and wrote this letter. He took a pen and filled it with poisoned ink. He really enjoyed writing this letter. And so he kind of absolutely slay, you know, slated this guy in the letter, wrote it. It was a really amazing piece of prose. And he finished it, signed it off. And just before he did anything, he went to Lincoln and he showed Lincoln the letter. And Lincoln read it and said, uh, that is a very fine letter. Uh, can I ask, what do you propose to do next? And Stanton said, well, I'm going to send it. And Lincoln said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I'd take that letter and throw it on the fire and let it burn. And Stanton said, well, I, th I thought you said write a letter. He said, yes, write a letter, but don't send that one. Put that one on the fire and let it burn. And write another letter. The equivalent today, I think Microsoft have this thing that you can put on your emails so that th it gives a 90 second delay or probably however long you want to make it but it's a delay on your emails have you ever written an email <laughs> send oh, oh 
come back, come back, come back. Ever done that? Yeah, apparently there's 90, it's like a, you know, it's like a calm, but it's a few more seconds. So they think, oh, oh, oh my heart. <laughs> was that out of fear? Was that an, was I kind of, an anger a little bit too quick? Back it comes. Time out. Calm. Be still. Maybe it's, uh, it's in the car. If road rage is a thing, there'll be loads of unmet expectations on your journey. Why do they irritate you into anger? What is the beeping of the horn and the shouting and the gesticulation? Even if you don't actually do it, in your heart you're kind of secretly doing it. What is that? If, if we are men and women of peace, so full of God's love, what am I trying to prove? What do I need to say? Pay attention to the anger that can boil up in our hearts, Jesus is saying. It has real consequences. He outlines them here. We can apply them to our lives today. Don't murder. Because life is sacred. Pay attention to the life of God in you. So that you will not hate in your heart. And you'll live well to honor God. was um, a lot there in the best possible way. Um, so can I invite us to stand and let's just let this settle. And we've got about 15 minutes, so um, we're just going to respond in some um, prayer and worship. Um, Matt and the guys, if you want to come up, that'd be wonderful. And there'll be something for each and every one of us to respond to. So perhaps you want to just adopt whatever posture is helpful for you to just say, okay, Lord, here I am. These, these 15 minutes are yours. Um, come and mold me. Come and shape me. So, Father, we love you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move afresh in this place this evening. We thank you for what you have been doing, the, the nudges and the whispers of all that you are, Lord God. And we just ask for an increase of that. And that you would give to each and every one of us what it is we need, that you know we need in your perfect sovereignty, because you know each of us by name.